Welcome to New Valley Church. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, uh, it's so good to be with you uh, this morning. We are in a series right now in 2 Corinthians where we're taking some of the highlights of the bigger passages and sections from 2 Corinthians and talking about having an enduring faith. Last week, we talked about an enduring faith in dealing with difficult relationships in the gospel, and today we're going to be talking about an enduring faith in learning to balance truth and grace, grace and truth. And uh, it's been one of those weeks, and I work really hard on my sermons. I work hard to clarify, to be very clear in what I'm trying to say, but I'm just going to be honest this morning. We've got kind of two competing sermons going on, and you're going to see in our passage this morning, there's the issue of balancing grace and truth, but also forgiveness and repentance and what that looks like. And so you're getting kind of a two-for-one deal uh, today, and I hope you appreciate it, and you'll, uh, you'll uh, see what we're talking about as we dig in here. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and it's going to be maybe like one of those movies where you get to select which theme you want to go down. And you say, I need to hear more about truth and grace. And others, you say, like, well, I really need to hear about forgiveness and repentance. And it actually all brilliantly fits together. You're going to see. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes this. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one... This punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. So today, we're going to be talking about, again, uh, the person who's growing uh, an enduring faith, but growing in grace and truth. And if you're going to have a faith that endures, like Paul's, and if you look at his life, you see he endured so much and yet was faithful to the end. You really do need to learn to balance this issue of grace and truth. And if you think about it, though, we have a tendency to be more truth-oriented, some of us, and others of us tend to be more grace-oriented, but an enduring faith, a growing faith, has learned to balance these and to live in both realities. And this past week, I heard this great story about grace and truth in a parenting situation uh, up in um, Utah uh, from an article I, I read in the Washington Post. So let me tell you about it. There's this six-year-old little girl in Utah, and she had helped her brother wash the windows, and she was earning some money. She organized the kitchen with an eye on her reward. Her mom promised her she could order a Barbie doll if she did her chores, but not just any Barbie doll, a purple Dreamtopia Rainbow Cove fairy doll. Uh, (laughs) 
Dreamtopia sounds more like dystopia. I mean, this sounds terrifying. This is just hilarious to me. She watched her mom order the doll on the family computer, and the next day she asked if she could check on the shipment to see, you know, how it was coming along. But if you've ever ordered anything from Amazon, uh, when you order it, they offer all of these suggestions. So she saw that her Barbie would be arriving the next afternoon, and then she noticed something else, all these suggestions about other Barbies and swanky Barbie accessories for sale. The Barbie dolphin magic transforming mermaid doll with a squirting dolphin. She, she couldn't resist. Barbie dreamtopia elephant. Really? Okay, Barbie fashionista's wardrobe closet plus a ton of other add-ons, and just in a few minutes... And a few clicks on the computer, she had ordered more than $350 worth of Barbie stuff. And here's a couple pictures of our dear friend here. Uh, <laughs> there's another one. So she, she orders these Barbies, and her parents, though, practice truth and grace. And the truth was, you ain't keeping these Barbies. None of them. They're all going back, including the purple crazy dystopian Barbie. She's going back. It's all going back. But then they thought, you know what? We need to not only teach her a truth lesson, we should teach her a grace lesson. I thought this was beautiful. So instead of just returning them to Amazon, they did this very gracious thing, and they had her take all of these Barbies. They wouldn't she even get to open them up. They took all these Barbies to a children's hospital, and she got to be blessing somebody. Truth and grace. Before we dig into more details about truth and grace, are you, think about it, maybe look to the person, if you came to church with somebody today, look at them. Are they more truth or grace? And you know the answer. Don't say it out loud. You, you could get in big trouble. You're grace, I promise. You're all grace. Are they more truth or grace? And look in the mirror for a second. What about you? Are you more truth or are you more grace? Are you a rule keeper, list maker, detail-oriented? You're probably more truth-oriented. Are you a, I can't drive 55, I, you know, rules were made to be broken, uh, better to say sorry than to ask permission, then you're probably more of a grace person. But the gospel, you're, you know this, is to be shored up in our lives and to experience the power of the gospel, we have to learn that it is truth and grace. So in our passage this morning, we read in the background that someone in the church in Corinth has been causing pain to the community. He says it's not just not just a few of you that have suffered, but really this pain has affected all of you. And if, if you're smart and wise, you understand that anytime we fall into patterns of sin and brokenness and rebellion against God, we're never just hurting ourselves, are we? Never. I want to believe it's privatized. I just want to believe that I can compartmentalize my life and just be like, this is only about me, you too. That this stuff, this only impacts me, but you know that's not the case. Even inward heart dispositions like anger and, and pride or lust or covetousness, things that we think are just about us, it always impacts other people. It always impacts the community. And Paul says, look, this, this pain that someone has caused is not just affecting you, it's affecting the whole community. And the good news is this, though. It's not just our sin that affects the whole community, it's also our holiness. And that's good news. As God grows his grace in us, when God's goodness begins to be worked in our life, that has a communal impact as well. What did the church do about this man who'd caused pain? Well, they were punishing him, it says. The majority was punishing him. They were practicing some sort of church discipline, probably having removed him from their fellowship. But Paul believes that this person has now expressed repentance 
and true sorrow for his sin, and that the church now should move from a stance of truth to a stance of grace and forgive him. And he's fearful that if they don't, that his sorrow will be too excessive and that he won't be restored to faith and walk with Jesus again. Who is this person? What did this person do? And in 2 Corinthians, he does not spell that out. We don't know the details at all about what happened, but a lot of commentaries uh, and, and commentators and Bible theologians and so forth believe that the person he's referring to might be the same person that he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we read about him in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, where he says this. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans in the Roman Empire. For a man has his father's wife. And you're arrogant about it. And ought you not rather mourn this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So originally in 1 Corinthians, we're in 2 Corinthians right now, there's this story where a, a man has had an intimate relationship with his stepmother, and yet the congregation is, instead of dealing with it from a truth perspective, is only handling it out of grace, and Paul is talking to them about that. He confronts them saying, look, <laughs> you're being all grace in this moment, but the gospel is also truth. The gospel is grace and truth truth and we know that john 1 tells us about jesus and the word became flesh dwelt among us and we've seen his glory glory is of the only son from the father full of what full of grace and full of truth so in first corinthians paul confronts them because they're living as if the gospel is grace but not truth and that leads to license into grace abuse we we know that we can abuse grace some of you don't some of you are so hardwired towards uh, being rule followers and rule keepers but other of us battle the grace abuse and some of us kind of have this feeling of like this is the perfect relationship me and jesus i love to sin <laughs> he loves to forgive he's full of grace this is incredible i keep on sinning he keeps on forgiving, and he's glorified because I sin, he forgives, he died on the cross. This is a beautiful relationship. I get to keep doing what I want. He keeps forgiving, and yet Paul tells us in other places, like, should we sin so that grace may increase? No, no, may it never be. Grace abuse. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that, you know, we're new creatures in Christ, and he's challenging them. But conversely, truth without grace is legalism. Grace without truth is license. It diminishes the gospel. It diminishes growth in our life. But we also know how insidious and difficult and sinful the opposite is. And many of us have been so hurt by this that grace without truth is a problem, but truth without grace may be even a larger problem. And I have talked to so many people about their story of faith. And I know many of you can relate to this. You grew up in church. And on the one hand, the pastor, it, it, on the books, on, you know, on the confession of faith, on the website, uh, everything they list says we're all about grace, that people come to saving faith through grace, through faith alone. And while we say it's all about grace, in reality, as you lived in the culture of the particular church you're growing up in, the unspoken rule is that it's not really about grace. It's all about your performance. 
It's not about Jesus' performance for you. It's not about living in light of that out of gratitude and, and growing in that. There were all these rules, some of which might have been in the Bible, some of which maybe weren't, maybe things just made up, cultural norms, and it was legalism. No matter how much we talked about grace, there was this hypocrisy. I, I've heard that story over and over and over, and usually the end result is, and so I left. I gave up on church. I may never go back to church. And by God's grace, some of you are back, even though that was your story, and you're back walking with Jesus and learning what grace looks like. Truth without grace is legalism, and it's not the gospel, and it destroys our ability to be empowered by the gospel. Both of these realities are so, so true. Now, you know what's sad to me <laughs> is that I think there's a tendency, no matter how grace-oriented you are or kind of free-spirited in your temperament or personality, I think there's a tendency for those of us that start out with grace— that the longer you have been a Christian and the more churched you've become, that in reality, we often end up becoming people who are legalists, more like the Pharisees than, than Jesus himself. Have you noticed that? That over time, there's a trajectory and a tendency for church people, no matter how much grace they get, if we're not careful to fight this, that this begins to grow in our heart and our life. We become more legalistic if we're not careful, more judgmental of other people, more hypocritical in our life if we're not careful. And we have to live, and, and the way out of this is to live with this tension of Jesus being full of grace, and full of truth. And the reason I think we get to this place is this. We start out in the Christian faith as beggars. You, you can't become a Christian if you admit, I'm a spiritual beggar, man. That's the very first step we take as a follower of Jesus. You know that, right? And, and whether you've grown up in the church, whether you're a son of mine, I've got three boys raised in the church, literally born in Christ Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, and literally, the next Sunday, they were all born on a Sunday, and so was I. What are the odds of that? It's pretty cool. All born on Sundays. Next Sunday, they're in church. Baptized just a couple days later. <laughs> Probably the next Sunday. And yet, they must come to know Jesus. They must get to a place where they see themselves, even though they're covenant children raised in the church, they've got to get to the point where they say, I'm a beggar in need of Jesus Christ, and I'm a spiritual beggar, and I need him. I'm desperate for him, and without him, I have no hope except in his saving grace and mercy. That's how we become followers of Jesus. That's how faith comes into our life. That's how we're born again, by grace through faith alone. And it has to be your faith can't be grandpa's, can't be some theologian you've read, some author, has to be your faith, Ch children of this church. It's awesome to be raised in a Christian home. You should be so thankful, but there comes a day where you have to see your own poverty and your own spiritual need and come to faith in Jesus. That's where we start, as beggars, but over time, we forget that we're beggars and we start looking at ourselves because God is merciful and we do grow and we do change and we do get more righteousness in our life. But if we're not careful, we forget the foundation of where that's coming from. It's the Holy Spirit's work in making you more holy and without him in your life, you'd be as lost as you ever were. 
But we see righteousness in our life, and instead of being humbled by that, at times we become judgmental of people that maybe we're further along in the walk of faith, and, and we've had God's grace in our life, and we turn and say, I judge you. You may not say it out loud, but in your heart, you have judgment towards people, individuals, people in your neighborhood, people in your family, and literally whole groups of people in society. Right? Church, am I right? Am I crazy here? I, mean, th- I experience this too. And the way out, the way out is a fresh, renewed experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. If you're 90 and walking with Jesus, you need a, you need a fresh reminder of the gospel for you. 90, 80, 70, 10. You need a fresh reminder of how much you need Jesus. Next, grace without truth, though, is license. We've already touched on this a little bit, but I want to I do it more. In 1 Corinthians, when they were failing to confront the man originally, let's, let's assume that this is the man we were talking about, as most commentators think. He says, you need to remove him for his actions. And he also says, I've already passed judgment on him. Why are you celebrating this grotesque sin, he's saying. They're so grace-oriented. They're they're, they're being so, they think they're being grace-oriented, but grace without truth really isn't grace. And truth without grace is certainly uh, not truth either. And so they're, they're just sort of celebrating this situation and not dealing with it. And when he says, I've already passed judgment on him, He's not saying, I ultimately judge him. He knows that God alone judges. But what he's saying is we can judge our own actions. And there is a sense in which we as a church, as a community, we're to hold one another accountable. Truth and grace. And forgiving someone doesn't mean that you don't confront the other with truth or warn them or encourage them and hold one another account. And Jesus says, or excuse me, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, so powerfully, and we'll look at this again, there, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Grace and truth. Truth and grace. So important to experience the power of the gospel in your life personally. To, to be able to walk as a follower of Jesus, we need to understand that the gospel is truth and grace. And Paul gives us this very particular instance of what that looks like with the, this issue of forgiveness on the one hand and repentance on the other. One of the reasons they, they are not forgiving this person is they're, they're failing to remember that the gospel is truth and grace and you really can't repent either if you don't understand that. So what I want us to see this morning is this. As you grow in grace, as you grow in grace and truth, you are empowered to repent and forgive. We see this, this very specific issue going on in this passage. So in 2 Corinthians 2, back to our original passage this morning, he says this, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of of his designs. And and what Paul is saying here, Paul's warning them, if, if we are a people that don't forgive, we're being outwitted by Satan. That we have a calling to forgive. How how can we who 
have received so much mercy and kindness and grace from Jesus ourselves, not be a people who are empowered to forgive other people. Paul warns them if they don't forgive the one who is truly repentant, then Satan is outwitting them. He's beating us. He's outmaneuvering us when we fail to live in, in both grace and truth. He gets a foothold if we don't forgive, but on the other side, if you're the person caught in something, he gets a foothold if we don't repent. And to truly experience the fruit of forgiveness requires repentance at some level. I mean, we try to forgive some folks, and you're called to forgive whether people repent or not, but to have a right relationship with one another and to be restored, obviously there needs to be not only forgiveness, but also repentance on both sides. And we need truth and grace to get there. Otherwise, Satan gets a foothold, and we are outwitted. At first, they celebrated how gracious they were being. They were all grace and no truth with this individual. But forgiveness, friends, is rooted in truth and grace. A lot of you are fearful of forgiving, and, and you don't want to do the hard work of confrontation, of saying a hard thing to somebody, but forgiveness, please know this, is not simply looking the other way. That is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not excusing something that somebody's done. It's not excusing a harm, an abuse, a wrong, a sin. It is not looking the other way. It is not just put it, pushing it under the rug. And let's face it, many of us temperamentally, we don't like going there. We don't like confronting. We don't like having that hard conversation. And we're, what if they don't accept this? What if they don't listen, etc., etc., etc.? And so we just avoid that and say, well, I've forgiven them. But forgiveness is rooted in the truth which leads us to do the hard thing, which would be this, to talk to this man, to call him to account, to say, we love you too much to let you remain in this unhealthy relationship. It's going to destroy you, your family, that woman's family. It, it is your family. This is, a, this is a thing that is so unhealthy, not even the Romans do this, Paul says. And they thought, oh, we're being so gracious by ignoring it, but that's not true forgiveness. They needed truth to actually forgive, which involved confronting. How about you? Forgiveness. Do you run from the hard conversation? Do you run from naming that thing that the person did? Forgiveness, obviously, we know that to forgive someone requires grace, obviously. I mean, that, that part we get that I extend you forgiveness because of the, the grace Jesus has given me. It absolutely requires grace, but it also, it requires truth. Where, where we confront, where we say the hard thing, it takes grace and truth to forgive. And it also takes grace and truth <clears throat> uh, to, to repent. Paul later in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians says this, and this word repentance is a biblical term, and, and it's in a very important one, and it literally means to turn around, to do a 180. And again, like faith in Jesus, we, we mentioned earlier, humility, saying, I'm a beggar. That's what repentance is. It's getting to the place that you're willing to admit that I have to turn from my rebelling against God, which is what sin is. I'm going to build my life uh, apart from the will of God and just do what I want to do. And repentance is turning from that and saying, no, I, I'm now wanting to walk in. None of us do this perfectly, of course, but I'm wanting to turn and walk into the, the life that God has for me. 
his will, not my own will, and I'm going to walk in that. That's what repentance is, and it requires grace and truth. And Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, true repentance, true sorrow for sin leads to what? We're the Presbyterians who clap, so like we actually show up to church and are ready to, to smile and respond. Like, Godly grief, true repentance leads to what? Thank you. <laughs> and, and worldly grief, faking it, not really repenting, not really, leads to what? To death. Thank you. <laughs> Godly grief. Paul says that when someone is caught in sin, there's two types of grief, and you know this. You've experienced it, you've been both probably, and you've definitely seen it in other people's lives. You know the difference in your own heart when you have worldly sorrow, where, where what? You're just sad for being caught. Sad for the consequences. Grieving because this is horrible. I'm in emotional jail now. I am confined. I, I'm facing consequences for my actions. And you can begin to see in the fruit of somebody's life whether they're experiencing worldly grief or godly grief. Godly grief, though, is different because it's sad, not simply for being caught, but sad for sin itself. Just because you grieve and are sad about a situation doesn't mean you actually have healthy grief. You can grieve what it is doing to you, or you can grieve what it's doing to your Lord and Savior and to other people, and you know the difference. One is grief over consequence, and the other is sorrow over the sin, or excuse me, of, of true sorrow. One is self-pity, and the other is repentance. Just this week, there's a coach of a football team in the Midwest that has particularly rabid fans. It might be in Ohio. And there's been a scandal regarding one of the assistant coaches who's been accused of domestic abuse and violence, and yet, yet again, another university has handled this so poorly. And the coach had a press conference this week, and rather than apologizing to the victim, and he later did in a tweet, not the way to handle things, by the way, not, not the way to handle things, I don't care who you are. Later he did in a tweet, but he had a press conference where he had an opportunity to speak, and rather than apologize to the victim and be honest with what had happened, he said this, well, I have a message for everyone involved in this, I'm sorry that we're in this situation. I'm just so sorry we're in this situation. I don't care if you're the biggest fan of this team or not. And I was listening to sports radio like I do every week. And even the most rabid fans are saying, this is wrong. And the sports commentators sounded like biblical preachers and they're going, there's a difference between worldly grief and true sorrow. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You know, these... That's not what they were saying, that's exactly what they were saying. They're saying the exact same thing Paul says. There is true, heartfelt sorrow and repentance, and there's that. One leads to life, and one leads to death, and to do either, you need truth and grace. The reality is with the gospel, friends, you can't have the good news about Jesus until you've wrestled with the bad news. 
The gospel doesn't make sense to you until you first wrestle with the bad news, the truth of it. To get to the grace part, the beauty, you have to work through the truth, which is this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yourself included. And when you get to that and you can say, that's true of me. I don't have to worry about you. That's true of me. Then you can repent because you're dealing with your own stuff. And one of the big differences between godly sorrow and true repentance is this. You quit blame shifting. Blame shifting is when you say, look, yes, of course I did this, but there's always this huge but where you say, but I got to tell you the 15 reasons why, and it was this, and I was tired, and I was sad, and you know my temperament, and I get my blood sugar's low, and you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. We quit blame shifting. You caused it. They caused it. And say, but at the root of it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and I am responsible for this. I can at least name this. This is what I am responsible for, and I'll own it. And in counseling, and in my own life, and my own marriage, and my own heart, I know I'm ready to deal with something when I'm willing to own it. And there isn't this litany of but, 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 yeah, but, you know. And even if I'm not responsible for all of it, I can own the part that I am responsible for and own it. Repentance. It takes truth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Even if you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years, you're still broken, fallen, in need of Jesus. Repent. But the thing about repentance is, it's not completed until you enter into the grace side of things. Some of you are so grace-oriented, you, you don't ever think about holiness or walking with God, but some of you are so law and rule-oriented that you have such a difficult time of entering into God's grace. But repentance is truth, I'm broken, fallen, sinful, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it's also grace. And here's the thing, it's not completed until you go to Jesus with that. Amen? Paul said this about this community. You're, you, were right to, you were right to discipline. I, I told you in my first letter, why are you putting up with this? On the other hand, he repented. He repented and they didn't want to receive him and forgive him and let him, and he said, I'm, I'm fearful that he'll have excessive sorrow and never come back to a full right relationship with God and walk with him. And some of you have excessive sorrow, but listen, repentance is not done until you get to the place where you say, I will arise and go to Jesus and he will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of Jesus, there are what? 10,000 charms. There is grace upon grace. Every single sinner that truly repents out of truth, not just false repentance, not, but a true repentance, on the other side is always grace. And some of you avoid God every time you sin, especially those those sins that we're bound up in and we have a difficult time with and we repeat and you say I'll never do that again I'll never do that again but then you do that again and then what do you do in that moment what do you do you you go to the truth and say here I am again and this is wrong this is sin this is broken but many of you stay right there and you flee from Jesus and you give it a couple weeks and you think, if I can just get some more obedience in, in the next couple weeks, maybe I can go back to him. But I'm telling you, it's truth. 
You are broken. You are sinful. That was sin. You don't have to deny it, but it's grace. And in that moment, right there, don't flee from Jesus. Run to him in that moment, right, right there in that moment, in that, that place that's awful that you keep saying, I'll never do again. Even then, in that moment where you've returned to it yet again, when you repent, go back to him. And there, you'll find his loving, gracious, open arms and, and remind you that, yes, I am working in your life. And Philippians is true of you, that he who began a good work in you, I'm completing it by the day of Christ Jesus. But walk with me, child. Walk with me. Stay close to me. So much going on in this passage. But friends, just think, if we were empowered to walk in truth and grace, grace and truth, never making excuse for sin for ourselves or for anyone else that walks with Jesus, but grace, not feeling like I have to be the moral police of the universe and accusing everyone else in their judgment, truth and grace, walking in that balance of truth and grace, and also, can you imagine if you were empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a person who was able to forgive out of truth and grace, grace and truth, and a person that was able to live a life of repentance out of grace and truth. Can you imagine what that might do for your relationships? What would your marriage look like if you're able to repent and forgive because of truth and grace? What would your relationship with your children look like if you were able to live and be empowered by truth and grace and be able to forgive and repent? at work, in your neighborhood, but mostly these close, close relationships of family, marriage, children, parents, grandparents, these close-knit relationships that are often so broken and so difficult. What would it be like if we were empowered to live out of the gospel? Let's pray.